Okay, so as this big vote's coming up for Oklahoma Annual Conference on Saturday, where I and the delegates of 54, 55 churches uh, have been re-invited to come back and vote, even though we disaffiliated, there's uh, a lot of information to process. I put out a piece yesterday where I went through a conference FAQ and then First Church's response to it, and in that I talked about fraud being the only... Uh, situation in which the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine can be uh, overruled. So I uh, just got done with an interview, a lengthy interview with Lloyd Lunsford, a a lawyer that deals in this very niche area of church law. Hope to release that soon. And even after talking to him, it took a call from another lawyer, Chip Smith, who finally helped me understand the fraud provision in with respect to ecclesiastical abstention doctrine only matters when the court is ruling on an issue of doctrine. But what has happened in Oklahoma is not an issue of doctrine. It's a real estate matter. It's, it's property. And so the conference argued that it was indeed an ecclesiastical theological matter, and so the court had no right to get involved. But First Church argued uh, it's in the section of the Book of Discipline that deals with property disputes. If they left the the if the local church left and took their assets with them, the conference would file against them using the Book of Discipline. So just because you're using the Book of Discipline does not mean that it's always a theological issue. There are some just practical issues. They they made the case, and the judge was persuaded very clearly, that the real estate issue was enough. So uh, in her decision, which we're about to walk through, I just decided this is an interesting document. I I thoroughly enjoyed reading this document. I think a lot of people really will. It is not what you imagine typical legalese sounding like. Judge Timmons is very easy to understand in this and does a very good job making very clear what she means. I found it to be a cathartic thing reading through, And um, this is just a transcript of what she actually said. But anyway, in this, while she she does kind of allude to fraudulent practices going on, I need to back off from the assessment that I offered earlier. I haven't been threatened. Nobody's threatened to suit or anything. But to say that the judge's ruling was an implicit um, allegation of fraud, I don't think that that was actually right for me to say. That was based on me fundamentally misunderstanding what, um, uh, it's not free exercise, what neutral principles. Whenever it's just a real estate thing, it's not a theological thing, then a, a state body can consider just neutral principles of real estate civil law, and that's the case that First Church and the lawyers made. So this is not an exemption to the ecclesiastical exemption doctrine, even though that is what the conference is alleging and taking great offense to the state discerned the inner workings of this and said, this is just a, a real estate dispute that the conference provided its own rules for. Well, she'll say what she says. So anyway, I'd invite you, you know, if you have a bunch of things that you need to do, go do them. But if, especially if you're in the Oklahoma realm and you want to know what actually happened and why the judge ruled the way she did, she's not crazy. This is an unprecedented step. It's very uh, weird but just weird doesn't mean bad, weird doesn't mean evil. Um, And 
I think it's interesting. So I, I would like to go through it with you. If you're on the podcast, you're not listening to me or you're not seeing what I'm, I'm putting it on the screen like I usually do. I haven't underlined portions the way I usually do, but um, it's a lengthy document. So I'll read some and I might add some commentary, but if you've listened to much of my stuff before, you already know where I stand and how I see things. I'd like to think that I'm relatively unbiased and that if the shoe were on the other foot, I would see things the same way that I do now because there's just the right and wrong of a thing regardless of who's on what side. So anyway, let's look at this document. Um, this is in the District Court of Oklahoma State of Oklahoma. has its case number. Um, yeah, you should see it on the screen now. It's a transcript of the ruling of the court on plaintiff's motion for the temporary restraining order and temporary or permanent injunction along with the request for emergency settings and defendant's motion to dismiss. So that was the original uh, motion. It was a restraining order from First Church match, uh, matched with uh, the conference said they made a motion to dismiss. Timmons said not going to dismiss it. They had the hearing, and then this is her ruling. It's pronounced on July 17th, 2023 by the Honorable Aletia Haynes. I don't know if it's Aletia, Alicia, uh, Haynes Timmons. So this is the attorney's copy that, that got out. Um, all right, so there's proceedings there, and then this is the actual ruling. I think that at the outset, I'm going to say that, you know, it's not my purview or intent to go into any ecclesiastical matters. Okay, so right on the front end, she's making clear this is not ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. This is neutral principles, real estate. This is the distinction I did not understand until an hour ago. Um, you know, those things of the Spirit and the Christian walk with the National Church and First United Methodist is completely their purview. Don't mean to have anything to do with that at all, and I won't. So anytime she says the National Church, she means the United Methodist Church denomination. So she's going to use that term several times. That's what she means. I'm going to rule in this matter based upon neutral principles of law that deal with a covenant with the church and or a contract with the church at the national level and at the local level. And the thing I look at in all the entirety is the process, the process that the national church has set forth for these matters to be handled within. And the timing of it was set by the church, the national church, and the Oklahoma Annual Conference. And with regard to that, it is clear to me that in November of 2022, after a period of discernment that began approximately May of 2022, the church asked in a letter to the district superintendent for a vote on whether they were going to disaffiliate or not. That letter was answered timely by the district superintendent on January. I believe it was January 12th. You all correct me on that. And then um, the lawyers for First Church say it was on December 2nd. So then judge says, uh, December the 2nd, I'm sorry. He said, December 2nd, he responded and he called for a special session of the church conference and a letter dated January 12th, 2023, set for January 22nd, 2023 at 2.30 p.m. Now for me, that date was significant because attached to that letter were the membership roles that we have had a lot of testimony about today and throughout this proceeding. And looking at the email and the roles attached to it, I noted that it was from Pastor Dodson, who is under the discipline, the primary person who's in charge of those roles, that they had been by computer for a number of years, and that when he sent them on January 12th, and the letter that called for the church conference was 
the same time as they got the membership rolls. No person on that membership roll or the fact that it was less than it was the prior year was called into question. So this is something that if you watch yesterday's video, I look at the, the conference's FAQ about this, and they make a lot about the membership role and how important it was. And what she's pointing out here is they didn't say anything about membership role at this point. If they had concerns, why wasn't it put in writing? Was, why wasn't it brought into this process at all? Uh, back to Judge uh, Timmons. And I reviewed those membership roles that are Defendant's Exhibit Number 4. Okay, so that means if you didn't see yesterday's video, I uh, put the link to First Church's website where they have all of the exhibits, all of their legal uh, documentation, all on a website. You can download it. You can look at it. So as she's referring to these things, if you take the time to go and download it, you will see what she's talking about. She says, and it looks like, and that's why I asked the question, were there any questions about whether or not Pastor Dodson did what he was supposed to do with regard to those roles. I looked through them, and he's got notes on the side, deceased, deceased, retired clergy, senior pastor, deceased, deceased. So that tells me that in this review of their membership roles, he did what he was supposed to do. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to write those notes on there. And then if there was a question about it, that and the prior years, which was given in substantial, I guess, uploaded, if we can follow the process for that, based upon the document itself, that was uploaded on or about January 30th, and I don't even know if that's the date because it doesn't have a date on it, so nobody really knows when it was received. But if there was a discrepancy about that, one would have thought that there would have been some mention of it before there was a vote or there was a setting of the vote. And when we talk about process, yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. I love the way she talks. <laughs> if you agree, this is Judge Timmons, with the defendant's theory they can cancel and reschedule the date of the vote in a manner that doesn't comply with the requirements under 2553. That means that although they set deadlines for when this stuff is to be done, with the first deadline in April in this case, that they would have that they would have the ability to completely manipulate and strip all rights under the disaffiliation process by just continuing to cancel and reschedule, and churches would not have the opportunity to disaffiliate if they so chose. That can't be the literal meaning or the spirit and intent of 2553. It makes no sense. So what she's talking about there is when the conference chancellor, Kent Fulton, got up and explained on the stand how it is that he, as essentially the conference lawyer, understands the disaffiliation agreement to be written, which is supposedly supposed to be in compliance of paragraph 2553. He, he, he and the conference acknowledged, yeah, the vote was scheduled and the, uh, a timeline had started. However, the DS has the right to just cancel it and that nullifies the timeline. And so what she's saying is Fulton's argument there, apparently he represented that as the argument of all of the conference chancellors across the United Methodist Church. She's saying that that argument makes no sense legally. It, that clearly cannot be the meaning of the text because it is overtly unjust. Well, she doesn't say it's overtly unjust. She just says it makes no sense. Back to Timmons. And let me say this. The church... The church set the deadlines. Wasn't the church members? She's saying she's saying the conference. I think when she says the church, she's saying the the conference made these deadlines. They set the timeline. Here, it wasn't the church that set the deadline. The church says Timmons set the deadlines for how the process is to be done. She means the conference there. And then when I looked at the Book of Discipline, and it talks about a process called the CCP, which is a process for the assessment of local church potential, or 
the basically the communication with the church potential or conversation about church potential. She doesn't remember what CCP stands for. She says, nowhere is that mentioned in 2553, which is a disaffiliation process. They talk about church viability. And so Reverend Stinson was probably the clearest on that. He says Stinson is the one that um, oversaw the viability study, or he started it. He, he, he didn't complete it. Um, he said there wasn't a process for a church viability study with regard to disaffiliation. So he had to create one. Now, when you look at, if you, I don't, I don't remember if I've talked about it before, Stinson didn't even come on board until s- several people, they didn't know how many, had said no to this job. So the DS canceled it. They didn't have the CCV is what they called it, the, the viability study. They didn't have that authored. They tried to get a couple people, I, I know of at least one that turned it down. Finally, Stinson signed on I think a couple weeks after that point, and it was only then that they even drafted the document that they were saying First Church had to complete. Kind of weird. So he had to create one, says Timmons. Now, when you look at 2553, it says, and it says that you can make changes as long as they're not inconsistent with the disaffiliation process. And then she quotes from it, annual conference may develop additional standard terms that are not inconsistent with the standard form of this paragraph, end quote. So Timmons says, well, the annual conference didn't make the CCV. That was done whole cloth by the district superintendent or the bishop or I don't know who. I mean, it reminds me of Butterfly McQueen. Don't nobody know who's birthing babies around here and who did the CCV, whose idea it was, where it came from. I don't know that reference, but I think it's hilarious. Timmons says, the bishop said he takes ultimate responsibility. The district superintendent said, well, I did but I did after consultation. I didn't get a straight answer on that yet. Who's on first? I do know that reference. That's funny. Who knows anything about birthing babies? Because it's an unauthorized procedure. She's saying this. Timmons says, there's no procedure for that. And Stinson was probably the best testimony on that. So he had to figure it out. And he says on plaintiff's exhibit number 26 to District Superintendent McCullough, quote, As you've been informed, Reverend Chris Tiger, retired United Methodist elder and coach, has agreed to work with the conference leadership in developing a process which adapts the conversation on church potential to fit the context of churches who are considering disaffiliation, end quote. Timmons says, that means there wasn't one. And that was January 24th, two days after he had, two days after the church conference was supposed to be held. So they're figuring it out and they didn't do it timely. See what I mean? She's very clear about what she thinks. This is not legalese that is uh, obscuring what's going on. This is very clear speech. I I love this document. Timmons says, he called for the conference to be held on the 22nd. And if you can cancel and reschedule, cancel and reschedule, that was a Fulton argument. And then what's disturbing about that, Timmons says, if they were going to cancel and reschedule, when I looked at the timeline again, March 8th, I believe, was the last time anything was done. That's two months, almost three months before it came to this court. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. And then the testimony was, well, we had an annual conference meeting and a special conference that was set. Well, the National Church knew that, and the Oklahoma Conference knew that when they set the process in place for the CCV. They knew that ahead of time. They had already scheduled all that stuff. And then there was no testimony that Reverend Stinson wasn't empowered by himself to move forward with the two meetings that were left. 
He didn't need an annual conference for that. These were meetings he was supposed to hold. He didn't even hold the meetings. So when you hear her talk about, okay, first off, this is all substantiated under oath and in writing. So this is not opinion. This is fact. And secondly, when you lay it out, she is very gifted in laying things out in a very clear way. I wish I had these skills. I should, if it wasn't improper, I would just have her on the show and, and talk through these things. But yeah, she makes it pretty clear. Just so <clears throat> one thing I think is helpful to say is she is in the position of looking at lots of different organizations and knowing what the norms are, knowing what uh, reasonable conduct should can and should be expected of an average institution in the place of Oklahoma Annual Conference. So this incredulous tone that she's taking is not some um, – she doesn't have a dog in this fight. She's just looking at this with neutral principles, comparing us, my former annual conference, to – other organizations and saying, y'all, this doesn't look good. The way that you behaved here is not professional. It's not forthcoming. She, As I was clear at the set of this, she doesn't say fraud, but she does make very clear that the way that they behaved was uh, substandard. All right, back into the document. Tim says, so when we talk about they had to do paperwork and they were doing this and they were doing that, okay, I understand that, but you scheduled it, your schedule. And that schedule is important because it is not adhered to in a consistent, concise fashion. Even if you're out of line by doing the CCV, if you go ahead and do it and got it done, we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. But all of a sudden, everything stopped. So the churches, the church didn't get to meet the April conference to have their church voted on for disaffiliation. That's troubling to me. That's troubling. This is one of those times where <laughs> she's saying a word but it, it's a pregnant word. It carries a lot of latent meaning when she's saying that's troubling. She's saying there's something behind that that's really not good. Timmons says, the best case scenario is everybody was busy. Worst case scenario is that the national church sat on it so they'd miss it, all right? By the national church, I'm pretty sure there she means the annual conference. She's, she's saying, okay, maybe you just got really busy, but also maybe you did this intentionally. She's not saying they did. She's saying, here's the possibilities here. Tim says, I don't know which one it was, but that's what the result of what happened is. So this is why Timmons cared to reestablish a new conference and reconstitute the same assembly that took place in April. It's because from the way she's looking at it, they seem to have been disenfranchised um, in this vote that went a certain way, and now that those 55 churches and their representatives are gone, odds are they would be received in a hostile fashion in October. Back to Timmons. So the local church called a church conference, and they had a vote. Let's talk about that. The vote was done based upon the church role of Pastor Dodson, which I believe was done in good faith, and he probably took a whole lot of time doing it, it looks like to me, with all those addresses, people he contacted, folks taking people off who died, but when you talk about the church role, the National and the Oklahoma Conference has a role to play in that too. If they had thought that those roles weren't good and something is wrong with them, then why didn't they say anything or do anything official about it? And none of the pastors did either. And Pastor Dodson, bless his heart, was straightforward about it and said those numbers were just carried over from the prior year. So when it came time to vote on disaffiliation, he had no dog in the fight, none. And big numbers help him, okay? Big numbers help him make him look like he's got a great growing church. 
There would be no reason for him to make the number smaller if that's not what it was. There's no impetus on his behalf to do that. And then when there was an issue with the membership numbers, what does the bishop's office, the superintendent, Miss Malloy do? They do nothing. They don't go in and say there's a membership issue, so we got to stop this process and make sure everybody who wants to vote is voting. That doesn't happen. So it's disingenuous to me, says Timmons, that there was a real concern about the membership rolls when there was opportunity with the letter that went out after the vote was canceled to say that, and nobody did. Nobody mentioned it at all. So to me, it doesn't have a lot of credibility to say that that's an issue. It's also not ecclesiastical. It is a numbers thing. You count heads and you vote. That has nothing to do with the doctrinal issues. Me looking at whether or not a certain theological doctrinal argument or sermon who's going to preach in the pulpit, none of that stuff. It is simply looking at, under neutral principles of the law, what happened in this case. So you see her again coming around to, this is not ecclesiastical, this is neutral principles. I can't believe I didn't understand this before today. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. So she is belying, I think is the right word, the FAQ language that the conference submitted after this decision. Even after this decision, and she calls them out on this disingenuous rhetoric, they go ahead and keep saying it so as to influence the vote of what happens on Saturday. They give the impression that something screwy really happened with the vote at First Church, and they were disenfranchising votes. She goes down the line as to why that is not a plausible argument. They keep saying it anyway, because if you say something loud enough and long enough and as many times it might as well be true, right? Timmons says, so first of all, the church under paragraph 2553 had no authority or no right under the process that they adopted to ask for a CCV to start out with on viability. And then I listened, trying to figure out, why would you do a viability study on a church who says they're getting ready to go when you claim you're so busy, you don't have enough staff to do the disaffiliation process? So you're going to layer another process on top of that when you already know you don't have enough staff? It doesn't add up. Doesn't add up. <laughs> See, what I was focusing on a minute ago is people who are only ever United Methodist, this is all they ever deal with. They're just like, it's messy. You know, this is what we get. And you've got a worldly person stepping in going, no, no, this is screwy. This is, this don't make any sense. And this is not satisfying. This this is very troubling. So when you look at just the words she used, the way she frames it, it's very clear. And it becomes one of these things where you realize, oh, I'm so close to this thing that I don't see it clearly. Sometimes it's really helpful to have somebody from the outside coming in and saying, here's how it looks to me. Timmons gave a real gift to us, and I'm so glad I'm doing this. I hope a lot of people watch this. I hope they go through this and just go, yeah, this really was screwy. Timmons says, and then it would have been all right if the church had done what they said they were going to do, but they dropped it. She's talking about the conference there. Timmons says, they dropped it in March, didn't finish it in time for the local church to have the vote in April, and I think that was intentional. That's the way it looks, and I've heard nothing to the contrary. Ooh, that was some strong language right there. That's, that's, that's quite a thing. She said... Let's look at it again. I think that was intentional. That's the way it looks, and I have heard nothing to the contrary. That's that's pretty damning. Timmons says, when we talk about notice, I looked at paragraph 2546 under the Book of Discipline, and then I went to paragraph 20, 248. 246 and 248 were the paragraphs. It's interesting. It says that basically 
that the membership, well, that you can call one by one of the following, the pastor, the church council, or 10% of the professing membership of the local church. That's what the church did here. The administrative council called the church conference. And then when it comes to notice, the notice provisions are the same for both. So she's arguing with Fulton and others who argued, actually, it's just at the purview of the DS. When you read those paragraphs, the DS is the one who decides whether or not it can go forward. And she's looking at the language and going, then why on earth would they even mention the pastor, the ad council, for calling a church conference? She's saying that doesn't make any sense. There are two provisions. One is the DS. One is local church leadership. She's acknowledging that. And when it comes to notice, she says the notice provisions are the same for both. When I looked at 248, unless I miss my guess reading all this stuff, it talks about the bulletin, talks about from the pulpit or both, the preferred methods, I think it said, and then they also did that newsletter. And it says with regard to email, that if possible, I think it was if possible they email too. That makes sense too because some people don't have emails. Old dinosaurs in my church don't have it, and I'm one of them. I get enough reading here at the office. So with regard to email, sometimes that won't get it to the people. Newsletter, I always read it. Letters from the church, I always read those. But they didn't require letters because letters are cost prohibitive. So they took a vote, sent emails out, sent the newsletter, sent a ballot, and they had a vote. 16 ballots were received via email. Thought that was interesting too. Folks hot and heavy, defendants were about email and everybody, except when it came for them to receive their votes by email. And despite the COVID era that we're in, the church wanted them all there to be, all to be there in person. That didn't square. It didn't. But of the 80, 60 votes, 75% were for disaffiliation. 20 votes, 25% were against disaffiliation. So they did their ballots correctly. Nobody said anything about the ballots. Pastor was aware of them. No one tried to stop the vote. They answered the questions that were asked, which was interesting to me too because the district already had that information. Most of the information that was sent and gathered in a short time frame was already in the hands of the national and the district. And I don't know which exhibit that was. I think it, is it plaintiff's exhibit number 17, I read, I looked at those numbers too, found them interesting. So she's talking about the viability study now. She's saying they asked them for all these numbers that they already had on record. It's, it seems like they're just, the inference being they were creating busy work and just trying to trip them up in a process that was unnecessary. Timmons says, found that despite the fact that there were less people in Oklahoma, FUMC, that they had a higher percentage of payment of their assessments, she's talking about apportionments, than some of the other churches, and lower than some. St. Luke's in Oklahoma City was 36%, and First Churches, 44%. So if you're talking about viability, one would have thought you might have gone to Oklahoma City, St. Luke's, and checked them since they were playing, paying less. There was no uh, nothing I could find that militated to the church implementing the viability study in this case, nothing at all. None at all. And it looked like it was done to slow down their ability to disaffiliate. I may be wrong about that, but that's what it looked like to me. So she hedges, except that one I really highlighted earlier, she hedges here just saying, you're creating busy work for them to do. You're subjecting them to the study that uh, other churches that weren't making apportionments didn't have to do. Um, the inference being there, it, it feels arbitrary and capricious and or capricious, whatever. Timmons says, the financial question sent to the church, none of them talk about membership. They had been paying their assessments at a higher rate 
apportionments, than most of the other churches with more members. They had an outreach in the community and had been sustaining that for a number of years. There was no reason to talk to them about performance that I can see based upon the evidence I heard come from both the plaintiff and the defendant's witnesses. That seems like an important fact, doesn't it? You know, when they're talking about viability, why them and and nobody else? What other factors could this be? And of course, there is no way to know for sure why. And I don't want to convey that I'm subject to the backroom dealings, but it is a $30 million property property value assessment building. And it looks like the conference is about to sell their conference offices to make money. And it sure would be convenient if they had a building that they are trustees over that they could move to for free. So I... I'm not alleging any, I'm not saying 100% this is what it is. I'm saying that is the going theory in my head that is not very smart as to why it is that they would uh, have some incentive to do this. Timmons says, let's say I'm wrong about the viability study. The disaffiliation of the local church under 2553 says you have to do it. Make that determination before you set the church conference. And we know that wasn't done because the CCV wasn't even, the process wasn't even in place. If I read the emails and the documents that are attached to both the plaintiff and defendant's exhibits, nobody even knew how to do one with the disaffiliation process. And if you're going to do one, do what you say you're going to do and do it in a timely manner since you all are the ones that have set the time. And with regard to that, on paragraph 4A, standard terms of the disaffiliation agreement, it says, quote, the General Council on Finance and Administration shall develop a standard form for disaffiliation agreements to protect the United Methodist Church, end quote. That means they drafted it, and it was drafted to protect the national church, not the locals. So it says, quote, the agreement shall include a recognition of the validity and the applicability of paragraph 2501, notwithstanding the release of property therefrom, end quote. So they're saying, We're going to let you leave and take your property with you. That kind of reminds me of you ain't got to go home, but you got to go home and take all your stuff with you and don't come back, basically. I I don't know that reference, but uh, I think she's showing the silliness of that logic, maybe. I'm not smart enough to understand that. The church, Timmons says, is saying, if you want to get, get. Take your stuff and go. Okay, I understand that. I think this is the same idea. Timmons says, right? Quote, annual conferences may develop additional standard terms that are not inconsistent with the standard form of this paragraph. End quote. Okay. Annual conferences. Tim says, so let's look at paragraph 213. 213 and 212 says, churches and transitional communities. And it says that you can do, quote, special attention must be given to forms of ministry required in such communities. End quote. End quote. The local church is required to respond to the changes that are occurring in its surrounding community and to organize its mission and ministry accordingly, end quote. It makes no sense for the national church to require a dialogue about churches in transitional communities when they, at that point in time, are in the middle of a disaffiliation process. Makes no sense, even if I don't think it makes sense. Let me read what it says. It says, quote, Local church shall be regarded as a principal base of mission from which unjust structures of society shall be confronted. Evangelization, evangelization shall occur, end quote, new quote, Decisions concerning ministry in transitional communities be made after thorough consultation has taken place, end quote. Well, if they're disaffiliating, you're not going to have to make decisions about the pastors because they're going to be gone. 
she quotes again, commitment of resources in terms of money and personnel to the ministries and transitional communities be of sufficient longevity, end quote. They're trying to leave. What? So what need is there for that under 212? So do you see a theme here? She's just going, this makes no sense. There's a lot of language in your documents that that says this makes no sense. You're you're bringing it to this court like it makes sense, and either I'm taking crazy pills or you are. That that would be my phrasing. But she's saying there isn't any way, and she's a person who's very familiar using words. You know, the Book of Discipline is written with these words in the English language that take from their lexicon stuff from the Bible and stuff from the state. And she is conversant in state language. She's saying I've. I've made my way through lots of contracts. Here is the plain meaning, and you guys are doing something really screwy here. Back back to her ruling. Timmons says, and then it says, quote, oh, and then it, it says stays, but I think she says says, quote, the ministry of the local church may be enhanced by a review and possible development of some form of cooperative ministry, end quote. Well, they had already done that. They had the Christian... Ex- Christ experience, that's the, the UMC church that's in there as well, that's under the United Methodist Church, that was already in the church and was going to stay in the church. So all of the reasons for this study are, it seems to be in paragraph 2013, is the process for assessment of local church potential. You had the, already the national church had the economic information, and they had the church of Christ experience. Is that what it is? Christ, Christian experience right there? Uh, she gets corrected, Christ experience. All you had to do was go ask them. They're right there about what's going on, what's happening under the CCP in paragraph 213. So it made no sense to transmogrify that to an impediment to keep the church, to stall or slow the church's progress up on disaffiliation. I actually, I've read this before. I don't remember that argument, but she's saying, uh, you didn't have to do this whole viability study. All, all the way along, you could have asked an impartial third party, the, the church community that's literally right there, uh, to comment on what's going on. Timmons says, I make no ruling one way or another about whether they should or shouldn't. It's not my business. It's the church's decision about whether they affiliate or disaffiliate. That's for the people at the church to decide and the and the church to decide. But you've got to stick to the process that you have outlined for everybody else who followed it. And you can't change it in midstream on the what I call flimsy basis that has been argued in this case. It flies in the face of evidence, and it flies in the face of the process and procedure that has been set forth for everybody else to follow. And in that respect, this court finds that the plaintiff, First United Methodist Church, has been harmed, and that they have also demonstrated that they have a likelihood of success on the merits. Now let's talk about the remedy for that. When the plaintiffs missed out on the April 2023 vote on the disaffiliation, they missed out on 55 other churches who had the right to vote on disaffiliation in the was an annual conference, who are gone now. So now all of you have left, no. So now all you have left are those churches who probably, or I don't know, you know, you never know, but are made up of churches that are staying. That's the majority of who's probably going to be left, which means the chances of First United Methodist being allowed and authorized to disaffiliate are, have been damaged. So I first find that they don't have to go through the CCV process because it was an extraordinary process based on the evidence that I heard and saw in the documents that were introduced as exhibits and was not a process sanctioned by 2553 in the manner in which it was done. That the canceling of the conference for the church to vote on 
on it was done in violation of paragraph 2553. There was no real reason except for this last-minute Johnny-come-lately process <laughs> that had not been required of anybody else and was not authorized to be done in the manner in which it was done and in a timing in which it was done. I, I, I would love to hear from somebody who's on the other side of this and made it through this document and what they made of her rationale as she goes through this because it does seem very common sense, very clear. I don't know what mitigating factors other people look at and go, no, 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 this was legitimate. She shouldn't be mocking it. And this does seem like mocking, doesn't it? Timmons says, so the church conference also wasn't held in 120 days from the request of the plaintiffs, which is another violation of paragraph 2553. And the National Church set up the process and the timelines, and what is important about that is these delays have jeopardized this church's ability to govern themselves according to the processes put in place by the National Church. If there's any ambiguities or question marks about how it's to be interpreted, then under general neutral principles of contract, it is interpreted against the drafter, which is the National Church. With regard to the deadlines, there's a September 6th deadline that if they don't make that deadline, then they won't be on the December conference to disaffiliate. And at that point, no one else is going to be allowed to disaffiliate. So in an effort to put the plaintiff in the same position they were in, like everyone else, this court finds that an annual conference, I heard Bishop Nunn talk about, he can call one. He can call a special conference, and he did that on several occasions in the beginning of 2023. Well, whatever conference he calls must be called at least 30 days prior to September 6th, 2023. And in order to put the plaintiff back where they would have been, except for the conduct delaying them by the National Church, I am ordering that those 55 churches and their delegates also vote in the next called conference, along with those churches that are still remaining part of the conference. That's the only way you're going to put them back in a position they were in before the harm that was dealt them by the National Church. So this is the part that's really extraordinary. This hasn't been done anywhere else. Uh, this is the part that the annual conference is saying does violate the structure of the Book of Discipline and that how they, they, they're told to do things. Uh, her concern is not honoring the Book of Discipline. At this point, she says the Book of Discipline has already been torn apart by the conference that really had no regard for it, the spirit or the letter of it. Uh, she's very clear about that. She's saying all that's left to do now is restore to First Church, to the best of our ability, the the same benefits and privileges that would have been afforded to them had the conference acted in good faith and let them be on the ballot in April. Now, part of the reality is um, there's there's no way that's going to happen. You can't turn back the clock. There's there's a lot of bad will towards First Church right now because the conference is speaking very clearly about how it is that people who um, are are with them should feel. Uh, also, there the the dynamics and the denomination have gotten harsher since then. So it remains to be seen if they're even going to be able to clear the vote. But um, she's doing all that she can to reconstruct the circumstances of, of what, what happened. Let's go back to the document. So those 55 churches, Timmons says, that would have been involved in the vote in April are going to be allowed to vote in whatever conference that is called next. And this court orders it to be held at least 30 days prior to September 6th of 2023. That puts everybody back in the same place they were in before the actions of the National Church. Now, I will say this. Had Reverend Stinson had the meetings he was supposed to have, and this had been moved along, none of you all would be here. But you had from November of 2022, you had the meeting in February, 
then everything stopped. And the fact that you all, the National Church, was busy with other things, it's your timeline, so you're stuck with it. So there's going to be, I mean, if you talk to people in the conference office, they're going to blame it on one person or another. What she's saying is the blame resides squarely with the conference staff that set their own timeline and didn't meet it. So if, if there's a way to, to squirm out of that, I can't imagine it. I'm not very imaginative, granted, but uh, the, the judge lays it firmly at the feet of the conference staff. Quote, uh, this, is, this is Timmons talking, you can't excuse the delay because you had other things going on or don't put timelines in, or don't put timelines in place that will deprive people of their ability to choose how they want to handle the disaffiliation process with the deadlines that you all have put in place. It's not fair to them, and it violates the covenant that you all have set forth in 2553, covenant, contract, because the contract, in some respects, is a covenant. You didn't follow it. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. That's not my job. I have to say in it. I have no say in it, no stake in it. Do the process the way it was intended, and then if they disaffiliate or they're not, has nothing to do with me, and I'm not interested in that. So one of the things getting passed around right now is a meme saying, the state has overstepped, they've intervened, vote no on this ratification. She's making very clear, it doesn't matter how you vote. The actual outcome of the vote doesn't matter. All that matters is that the vote takes place the way it was supposed to. So you're not pushing back against the state either way you vote. Timmons says, I'm interested in if you've got a process, you're going to follow it, and you're not going to use it in a way to deprive people who are the repository of a what appears to be an adhesion contract anyway under 2553. The National Church made all the rules, made them all. There wasn't a whole lot of input, I don't think, from the local churches on what on that disaffiliation process. Maybe there was. And if there was, they were told to take it or leave it. And that came from the witness stand testimony. But if you're going to do that, you're going to follow it. All right? Does anyone have any questions? Is there anything? Let's go to the plaintiff first. Anything you'd like to add? You were saying you wanted to do a closing argument, and I don't think I needed to hear it. Maybe I missed something you all might want to let me know about. Um, I read the rest of this, and it's mostly working out and uh, clarifying stuff. There, the conference's lawyer obviously wasn't happy, um, but the conference has complied, and we're going to vote this Saturday, and they put out their FAQ, and uh, the bishop recorded a video that they put on that, and I, I tried to pull it up once online. I've tried to pull it up several times. It's, it's not working, so I don't know what, what he said, but I know that the party line, if you're staying in the Oklahoma Annual Conference, is the state was wrong to step in, and this is a theological matter. It's ecclesiastical matter. They had no right to step in. And um, the the state, at least, and First Church, and people like me are saying, this doesn't seem to be a theological issue. This seems to be a property dispute, and you designed a process that you hadn't really authored. You didn't stick with the timeline that you authored. Um, it seems pretty nakedly an abuse of power and authority over... Uh, a group of people that happen to inhabit a very valuable property. Um, so it just, there's not many ways to spin this where they come out looking good, the conference, or where you feel entitled to disallow First Church from disaffiliating. The only reason, I mean, it, it just gets to the point when you read through her words, when you read the FAQs as I did yesterday, I'm left thinking that the only reason 
to vote no, to show up on Saturday and vote no is out of spite and hatred for um, people exposing the conference staff for doing a lackluster job and or people who don't like you and don't want to be with you anymore. Um, so out of a feeling of personal rejection and a rejection of the leadership that you gladly submit to, and I'm not going to fault you for that. I mean, it's a great thing to submit to godly authority, and, and we're told scripturally to submit to godly authority. There were just a lot of us who concluded that the Oklahoma uh, in, uh, conference is not an extension of God's authority on earth. We don't acknowledge it as a valid expression of the church as understood biblically. If you, if you refuse to defend the doctrines and discipline that we have in our covenant, then we got to get out. I mean, so... So there's just a, a refusal on the part of those who have stayed to even hear that. And so I, it's not, hey, we understand how you see that. We disagree. We see it a little bit differently, but we totally agree that you have the right to go and that some screwy things happen, and yeah, you should go. I don't hear many of those voices, but I, I do see a lot of anger of, oh, the, the state shouldn't have stepped in, and First Church, they shouldn't have filed litigation and, and made us spend all this money and... Uh, guys, that's silly. You know, I, I may or may not talk about this in another. I think they're right to feel threatened by this. It is always, I know of two historical incidents. One is um, uh, whenever the Hasmonean dynasty was in charge of the restored kingdom of Judea, the Roman Empire was spreading and the Hasmoneans were, uh, this is this is the Hebrews after they came back from exile, they had reestablished the, the kingdom but they had a feud going on, and they were they were doing what the Hebrews did in the Old Testament, where they called a bigger power to come in and settle things between them. And because of that, Rome actually came in and, and took over, and they became a client state. So this acrimony that they had, they escalated, and they went to an outside power, and then both parties ended up getting hurt. This is something that, that historically has happened many times. This is something that, that allowed for... Uh, uh, Europeans to take over this country. You, you had local feuds between local people, uh, indigenous tribes, and then you'd come alongside them, and, and when it was all said and done, you took all their land, you took all their stuff, they had to go somewhere else. This is how the world works. It takes divisions that are going on, uh, bad behavior, and it capitalizes on that for its own gains. Now, I do think that the, the spill out from this, the, the spillover from this is really lam limited in the damage it can do to the church in America. I'm not particularly threatened by this. But what I am going to say is, hypothetically, if conferences continue to behave belligerently, and if we get to the end of this year and there are churches that come up for ratification votes and conferences vote them down and it invites all this litigation, I think you really are looking at, because you behaved coercively and uncharitably, I'm talking to conference leadership, I'm talking to people who vote with conference leadership. If you behave uncharitably and you restrain and restrict and coerce and you don't let communities go with their property that want to go, I think you are inviting lawsuits that have the very real potential of overturning American precedent in law with respect to church ecclesiastical rights. So what I would say is, if you disenfranchise churches from their buildings, there are going to be lawsuits. Whether or not that comports with your understanding or my understanding of Scripture, there are going to be lawsuits. And those lawsuits have, have second- and third-tier consequences that if you don't consider them right now, you could, in your escalation, in your hard-heartedness, be causing 
the overturning of precedent whenever it comes to how the first uh, uh, amendment is interpreted with respect to free exercise of religion. So you, you can blame local churches for it if you want, but if you're putting in the, in the position of being disenfranchised from their buildings and you're not gracious about it, then that's the path this is going to go. I don't think Timmons is going to be the last sympathetic judge that conservative churches get. And so I think you have a decision to make this Saturday if you're in Oklahoma. If you're in other annual conferences and you are uh, sympathetic to the, to the conference, I think that's your prerogative to be sympathetic with your conference. But to vote in such a way that invites litigation on the part of churches that have the resources and sympathy to overturn American precedent and law, that's, that's writing a check that you might not want signed. So I think the prudent thing, even if you disagree with First Church, is to let them go because it's a morally reprehensible position to be in, to be withholding someone, holding someone back who wants to go, and it's inviting the destruction, potential destruction, of your denomination on down the line if you are exercising your way, uh, yourself in a way that the state frowns upon. So let's not get the state involved anymore. How about that? That's the deal I'd I would propose to denominational authorities. How about you just let everybody who go go who wants to go? The the book of discipline has already been shattered, and yes, we have processes in place. But if you don't let communities go that want to go, there will be litigation, there will be lawsuits, it will be costly. The power is in your hands, denomination. United Methodist Church, I hope you choose a different way than you've chosen so far. All right, let's draw this to a close. I'll put something else out soon. Thanks, uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I have. I'll see y'all later.